Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, one of the uh, most well-known passages of New Testament Scripture. <clears throat> and yet, as, as Brother Mike has already said, much more fundamental than I think we, uh, in modern American Christian culture especially, uh, give it credit for. This, this is not just a you know, list of Benjamin Franklin's aphorisms about how to live a good life. This is the words inspired by the Holy Spirit himself, spoken by our inerrant, flawless, perfect Lord Jesus Christ himself to a multitude. And this entire sermon is uh, aimed at turning upside down the way they think about themselves, the way they think about the world, the way they think about what a kingdom of God must look like. And so, so there are a lot of challenges to our presuppositions and our uh, human inclinations, our natural thoughts about the way things work and the way things ought to work. All of these Beatitudes begin with the word blessed. Uh, a synonym is happy. It's just, it's, it's exactly what people want out of life, right? I want a happy life. I want to be happy. Would you like to have a blessed life? Yes, I'd love to have a blessed life. Well, here is the divine description of what that blessed or happy life actually consists of. And the things it consists of are quite different from what we would imagine it takes to have a happy life. Think about, you know, the advice you get from classmates, teachers, friends, culture, media, um, even your parents. We're well-intentioned. We do love our kids. And, you know, you're not all my kids. I kind of love the rest of you, too. We, we all want what's best for you. But even parents get caught up in the mentality of, you know, you've got you've to select this major. You've got to go to this school. You've got to accomplish these things. Here's how you know if you're in the right track career-wise. Uh, make sure you change the oil in your car. You know, all these steps that it takes to be successful in life. But Jesus says, you know, just sweep all that aside for a moment. Sweep all that aside and let's start from the ground up. Let's start with some very basic building blocks about what a happy or blessed life truly looks like, what it's truly made up of. Every one of these Beatitudes starts with something that is a description of the character, the heart of the blessed man, and then has a promise associated with that. And it's quite common to, to, to read these, these promises as the blessings that are being described. Blessed are you if A, because then B. Oh, B is the blessing. Well, B is a blessing, but the structure of these verses actually tells us that even while we're in that first blank, A, we are already blessed. We're already blessed, for example, if we are poor in spirit. There is a promise that comes on the heels of that, and that is a further blessing. But don't just think these are conditions to be met in order to receive a blessing. These are conditions to recognize, to realize how greatly and truly blessed you already are. Now, again, when we think about our, um, you know, our happy life, our successful life, we think about oftentimes our, our human nature, our tendency is to think about what we've got. I mean, kids talk to each other after their birthday party. What did you get? They talk to each other after everybody's open presents on Christmas morning and they see each other at church and they don't 
instinctively always say, isn't it a wonderful time to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? They say, what did you get? And then they rattle off the list of things. Well, I got this, and I got this, and I got this. The Beatitudes start with what you don't got. All right? It starts from a place, literally, of poverty. So we're going to build a a structure here of these Beatitudes that we have four things you don't have, three things you give when it seems like you had nothing to give, and then finally at the end, two things you get. So there is some getting here. Everybody can, uh, you know, hold a little bit of joy and reserve for that because you're going to get some stuff here too. But let's start with the four things you don't got, four things you don't have. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, yes, it is true that if you have the kingdom of heaven, if you're being comforted, if you've inherited the earth, and if you're being filled, that is certainly a blessed state. But remember, our point here is not just that the end blessing, the end result is a blessed state, but the starting position is a blessed state. So, the one who's poor, sad, maybe a little shy, not super courageous, and the one who's hungry and thirsty. That's the guy we're talking about. That's the girl we're talking about. We're talking about somebody who is lacking in all these areas. You remember Paul, the apostle, the easily, the well, he, it's not an exaggeration to say the greatest of, of Christ's apostles, although not one of the original 12. He said, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I labored more abundantly than they all. So Paul did a tremendous work of evangelism and establishing churches and strengthening and confirming the saints in the first century. Traveled all over the Mediterranean world endured unspeakable perils and sacrifices, willingly, joyfully for the cause of Christ. But Paul got to the place where he's like, Lord, I just, there's just one thing I need. I just need you to take care of this problem for me, my, this thorn in my flesh. It just it drives me crazy. It hinders me. It prevents me from being all that I could be in your service. Don't you see, Lord, that if you would just remove this, this uh, barrier from me, this, this weakness, this thing I'm this, this problem in my life that if it were corrected, everything would be better, then I would be an even better servant for you, Lord. And the Lord answered him after three unanswered prayers. The Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul learned, when I am weak, then am I strong. You see, when we're strong, when we think we've got the capacity, the ability to do something, to tackle a problem, to find a solution, to work it out and move to the next step. Even if we don't think we're the strongest man or woman in the world, if we think we've got a basic toolkit of strengths to be able to take care of life's needs, then in in the category of things that we think we've got covered, we're not looking for help. I mean, how many of you woke up this morning and said, Lord, please help me tie my shoes this morning? I would guess that not many of you did because you know how to tie your shoes. You've been tying your shoes for many, many years. And and so that's just not something that even occurs to you as an area that you need help in your life. But what if you were about 75 years old, doubled over in pain, afflicted so much that every morning when you roll out of bed, 
you, you, you're not even sure you can stand up and, and can barely move, maybe can't move without some mechanical or other human assistance, that person might say, Lord, help me tie my shoes. That's a person who recognizes this is, this, even this seemingly simple thing is actually beyond my capability. I need help. And so when we recognize that we are weak, it drives us to the place of ultimate strength. It drives us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so even, here's the challenge, even in the areas where you think you're doing okay, even in the areas that you might characterize as your strengths, your gifts, you give God the glory for it. You know, he's gifted me with this, this fine singing ability or this wonderful work ethic or, you know, just an outgoing personality or whatever it is. And I'm certainly not denying that God gives his children gifts. But even in those areas, you need to be ready to lay those crowns, as it were, at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I need your strength even in my, I need your strength even in the areas where I perceive myself to be strong. In other words, I need to see myself as weak and lacking in every area of life because all of our righteousnesses, the very best, the man at his best state is altogether vanity. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of the thrice holy God. You can't be strong enough to impress God. You can't be strong enough for God to say, wow, I'm glad I made him. He's really coming through for me. No, you can be strong enough to recognize that in your strength, you are still weak and you still need the filling, provision, wisdom, and guidance and leadership of your maker and your redeemer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This poverty of spirit, this, this sense of, of emptiness, this sense of need. You know, there are millions, billions of dollars spent in this particular segment of healthcare every year. People saying, you know, I just feel empty. I just feel discouraged. I just feel depressed. I just feel lacking. It drives me a little bit crazy when our modern psychologists and pop psychologists, which is all the rest of us, go back into history and try to diagnose the mental ailments of all of God's saints of years past. You know, William Cooper, it goes without saying now that every time you're talking about God's moves in a mysterious way, you've got to tell the story about how, how terribly mentally afflicted he was. Well, you know, these mental afflictions that William Cooper, that, that, uh, that uh, John Bunyan, that, that these great giants of the faith, Paul the Apostle, that these kinds of men experienced were evidences of this very, this very condition, a poverty of spirit. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to recognize that you're missing something. In fact, the scarier situation is to be in a position where you don't recognize you're missing something because the whole need not a physician. You don't go to the doctor when you're feeling fine, usually, unless you're required to take your annual checkup or get a sports form filled out. You don't go to the doctor. You don't go think about what medicines can I take if I'm feeling fine, doing fine, no problems at all. You go for help when you have a felt need. We go to Christ when we have a felt need. And therefore... It is a blessed state to be poor in spirit, to have that recognition of your own great spiritual poverty, your own crying need, your, a, 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 not just a desire or even a craving, but a desperation for deliverance, for healing, for strength, for a rock that is higher than you are. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The person who feels like he's got nothing, Lord, I come to you empty-handed. That one, he says, is going to have an entire kingdom. He's going to, have, he's going to be uh, a king and a priest with the great king of kings and lord of lords. He is going to, to, to sit and stand and laugh and, and leap and dance with joy in the presence of ultimate royalty. This one who is poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Luke's uh, account of a similar sermon Jesus preached in Luke chapter 6 says it this way, Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. So mourning, weeping, being comforted, even to the point of being able to laugh. Again, mourning is a symptom of someone who knows they don't have it all together. You've never had a day where everything went so perfectly right that you, yeah, there's such thing as tears of joy, but you've never had a day where things went so perfectly right that you broke down in mournful sobs. Mourning is a, a symptom, again, of a lack, of a need, of a, an unfulfilled emptiness. You might say, well, that doesn't sound like a blessed state at all. But it, it, it's exactly the blessed state that leads to the filling of that em emptiness. It's exactly the blessed state that draws us to the feet of our great comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sent another one like unto me, he said, and he will be with you and he'll remind you, he'll teach you all things whatsoever, he'll bring to your mind all the things whatsoever I've taught you. That mourning spirit, that sense of mourning our own sins, that sense of mourning our own inadequacies, our own failures, our own disappointments in ourselves and the ways others have let us down. These are all things that it is appropriate to mourn. But it's also appropriate that when we mourn, we, we sorrow not even as others which have no hope. We don't mourn in sort of a self-fulfilling spiral of despair. We mourn in a way that leads us to the one who has the answers. Like Jesus' apostles when he sent, uh, he had some hard sayings and some of the disciples, other followers left, and he said, will ye go also? And they said, to whom can we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Like the little child who's just gotten a spanking from daddy, but the only comfort this child knows in the world is found in the arms of his daddy and his mommy. And so he runs to the place of the very source of affliction and wants a hug, wants that embrace, wants that comfort and strength. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not um, really a character flaw, although it does here describe something that in the eyes of the world is seen as a lack, seen as something missing. You don't have enough self-confidence. You don't have enough bravado. You're, you're not willing to take risks. You're not willing to put yourself out there. You're not willing to take center stage and stand in the spotlight. You must be a really meek person. It's fine being a meek person. And Moses was the meekest man in all the earth, and God used him as not only the leader of millions to bring them out of bondage in Egypt, but to actually stand as a figure, a representative of Christ who interceded for his people and, and brought and communicated the will of God to God's people. And of course, Moses is a great example, but Jesus is himself the ultimate example. As we notice in every one of these Beatitudes, Jesus is its perfect embodiment. 
which is what's so wonderful about this very detailed list of these Beatitudes because we, we, we talk about, you know, I want to be more like Jesus. Oh, if we could just be more like Jesus. But then we have this hodgepodge of ideas, sometimes inconsistent and internally contradictory ideas about what Jesus is really like and what it was like to see him walk and teach and minister 2,000 years ago in this earth. This list of attributes describes for us those qualities of Christ which we should be particularly desiring to emulate. And so don't see it as a loss, a deficiency, an inadequacy in yourself when you are seen as meek. It's good to be meek because what meekness really means is not weakness. It means a strength that is under control. It means a strength that is quiet and resilient and persistent. A strength that is going to keep on going where, you know, the, the, the sprinter who can, who can run the quarter mile just faster than anybody else but can't even make it to the end of a marathon is not, you know, in the physical realm, that does not parallel the attribute of meekness. Meekness is the one who can go the distance because he's, he's consistent and steady and, and even keeled. This is a desirable quality. It's not that you're lacking enough uh, excitement in your personality. If you, if you can accurately be described as meek, it means that God has put something in you and you are, you are, are walking that path with him as he works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There's an element of humility, of, of submission in both this and the poverty of spirit. A willingness, uh, just an acknowledgement even, that I don't have all the answers. But it's okay because I know the one who has all the answers. I don't have all the strength. But that's okay because my friend who sticks closer than a brother does have all the strength. And so this blessed, meek man, the promise to him is that he shall, they shall inherit the earth. The one who doesn't put him out there, himself out there in front, the one who doesn't try to grab the spotlight, the one who doesn't you know, angle and finagle and manipulate to try to get every promotion at work or every accolade at school, he just quietly and consistently does his best and does, does the job that he's been called to do, fulfills the calling of God in his life. In the end, he's the one who actually inherits the earth. And blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Again, Luke says, blessed are ye that hunger now, indicating that while this is a blessed condition, like the others, it's a, a temporary condition. You're not going to be desperately hungry for all eternity. You are going to be gloriously filled with the fullness of God throughout eternity. But that hunger you have now, that, that, that sense of, uh, you know, I need nourishment. I need flavor. I need, I need texture uh, crunching between my teeth. I should have preached this right before lunch. But, um, you know, that, that, that sense that comes on you when you're physically hungry. He says that, that desire is, is what we need to drive us to Christ again. You know, Christ, again, is a, a perfect example here. When they uh, passed through Samaria, uh, which wasn't by accident, uh, John records uh, that they said we, they must needs go through Samaria. Turns out they didn't actually geographically, physically, according to the customs of the day, they weren't forced to travel through Samaria. There was a well-worn route outside Samaria that would get people back and forth between Judea and Galilee because they didn't want to be bothered by the Samaritans. They didn't want even their shadow to fall upon them. They certainly didn't want to have any, any uh, interactions with those wretched Samaritans. But Jesus had a must needs to go through Samaria. 
And it was to meet a woman at the well, at Jacob's well. And, and he sent his disciples away to buy some, some bread, some food. And as they were gone, he had this incredible dialogue with this woman. And when, when his disciples came back, they offered him some food and he declined it. And they said, did he already eat when we weren't here? And Jesus' words, I love this expression. He says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. There's already been something here that has been so satisfying that I can't even think about eating food right now. Sure, there'll be a time to, you know, catch up on my nourishment later. But right now, that, that, that growling in the stomach that we all feel, you know, when we have gone too long without a meal, uh, Jesus said, that is completely forgotten. That is completely out of the picture because there's something so much more satisfying. And he says specifically what it is. My meat is to do the will of my Father who sent me. Your meat can be to do the will of your Father who sent you. Your great satisfaction is going to come not from, from you know, stuffing yourself at a buffet line. Your great satisfaction is not going to come from an ice cream machine at the Western Sizzler that keeps pumping out, you know, and you, you, all the kids get in a contest to see who can make the tallest ice cream cone. Your satisfaction is going to come from these meaningful spiritual interactions. It was not a self-absorbed, it wasn't a monk in a mountain somewhere in a cave just meditating on God that found this satisfaction. It was Jesus engaging with a sinful woman and telling her about himself, telling her, telling her about the promises of the gospel. This can be your meat too. This can bring you such life-fulfilling satisfaction that it won't, even, it won't even matter to you. What's my job? What's my salary? You know, uh, what color is my parachute? What, what my, my house, my car, my family, you know, these things, these normal trappings of success are meaningless in comparison with the, the spiritually poor life, the spiritually grieving life, the spiritually meek life that is constantly yearning for the satisfaction found only in Christ and in doing His will. So, these first four Beatitudes, the, the kinds of things that make for a truly happy and a blessed life start with you recognizing how much you don't have and you're okay with it. I'm okay being an empty vessel in the hand of a God who has all resources at His disposal. He can fill me up with whatever He chooses to. He can pour me out wherever He pleases to. He can lead me in whatever direction may be His will, and I will gladly follow in His steps because I'm nothing and He's everything. As that great early proto-apostle John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he must increase. All right, the next three now are things you give. And it's tough to give when you don't have much to give, right? But it's not impossible. Remember, there was a widow who had two mites. And she went into the temple that day and she cast in of her poverty all that she had. When you've got nothing, in some ways, it's a lot easier to give because you just empty everything into the hands of the Lord. You just pour yourself out. At my father's funeral back in 2007, hard to believe that was 15, nearly 15 years ago, over 15 years ago, um, I hadn't, I, we'd been talking, we were snowed in, iced in up there in Cincinnati, and so we had the boys, the family, had several days together, and just a beautiful, lots of tears, lots of laughter, lots of looking through old photographs and sharing memories, and, and time to prepare some remarks for the funeral service, 
But this remark uh, that, that the Lord laid on my heart at the funeral wasn't among the remarks I'd prepared. It was just simply an observation. You know, my father was one who, who suffered with mental illness for essentially his entire adult life. Not always diagnosed, but became more and more evident. He was a man who struggled with sin. Praise God, he did struggle. He was not a man who just rolled over and gave in to sin. He was a man who fought against sin. He was a man who, who reveled sitting under the sound of the gospel. He loved you know, helping people in uh, inconspicuous ways. He was uh, a devoted follower of Christ in, in, in accordance with his own uh, characteristic of spiritual poverty. You know, he, he had nothing, but here's what I said in the funeral. He had, since he had nothing, he could give us nothing except himself. And that's exactly what he did. My entire life, even after I was grown and moved out of the home, every time I would see my father, he was trying to give me more of himself. Well, friends, we are blessed to be able to be generous out of our poverty. Yes, it applies literally like the widow's might to the area of financial generosity, but it means much more than that. Let's look at some things we can give to be more like Jesus. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. When's the last time you generously, outrageously gave someone mercy that they didn't deserve? But of course, even as I said that, I was just repeating myself because mercy by definition is a favor that someone doesn't deserve. You are giving them, in fact, a goodness in place of some punishment or some justice that they do deserve. So you have a valid claim against somebody. Brother Lewis does a lot of counseling. Brother Bradley does, has done decades of counseling. Uh, I'm sure that their observation in my, uh, compared to my much uh, more meager counseling experience would still line up with this. And that is that in, in most conflict counseling situations, I would say virtually every one of these kinds of situations, marital counseling, you know, peacemaking, uh, Ken Sandy type endeavors between estranged brothers or factions trying to work out and rec bring about reconciliation over a grievance. In every one of these situations, people want to begin by telling you, explaining to you, proving to you, justifying to you just exactly why they are so right. But the interesting thing about mercy is it presumes you're in the right. It says, of course you have a claim against your brother. Now tear it up and throw it in the fire. Give it up. He owes you. Yes, he owes you. We all agree he owes you. Now forgive him. Now pay his debt for him. Now step alongside him and bear his burden with him. In other words, be merciful. Give out of what you don't have to give. And it is sometimes so hard to give mercy in this way. But it is so exhilarating and so Christ-like to be able to be generous to others in this way. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And of course, we know the uh, teachings of Jesus, even the Lord's model prayer and the, the parable of the man with the debt of 10,000 talents. I mean, it's repeated over and over, you know, forgive us as we forgive others. Be merciful to us in the way we are merciful to others. That's really quite a horrifying prayer to pray if you think about it. Lord, I've been merciful today, one day out of 10, one opportunity out of 100 today, but I was merciful. Did you notice, Lord? 
Would you please be merciful to me just like that? One time out of a hundred, one day out of ten. No, the Lord is so generous with his mercy. And we are so stingy with ours. It's okay to be wronged. It's a characteristic of meekness to be able to absorb the pain of someone else's wrong and to love them more than yourself. And think, why would they do that? They must really be hurting. They must have a need. They must have a blind spot. There must be something I can do for them to help this person who wronged me so. You'll obtain mercy in proportion to your generosity with mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to talk briefly about this in two dimensions. First, this is a gift you can give others as well. Purity of heart. And I don't mean merely moral purity. That's a, a wonderful thing in its own place. What I'm talking about here is, is the purity of intentions, a, a, a sincerity, an authenticity. You can give others the gift of being real with them, of being transparent with them, of not having ulterior motives in your dealings with them, of not having a phone call with them where your voice is all bubbly and respectful and polite and friendly, and then as soon as you hang up, you laugh with your friends about what an idiot the person was you were just talking to. That's not pure heart. That's a duplicitous heart. That's a, a, a double-facedness or a, a two-facedness or a double-mindedness. No, I, let me just, Lord, be simple. Let me be, let me be just like a, a, th this beautiful, it even says spring water right here on it, right out of the earth, this beautiful, clear water. There's nothing in it. There's no coloring. There's no additives. There's no sugar. There's no dirt. It's just pure, clear water. Lord, let my heart be pure like that in my dealings with those around me. Help them to know that what they see is what they get. They don't have to try to read between the lines. They don't have to try to interpret my moods or my silence or my glares or my tone of voice. No, they just listen and my yay is yay and my nay is nay. And I have the residual benefit, the, 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 the uh, collateral benefit of, of actually having not to worry about keeping track of what I've told to whom and make sure I keep my story straight everywhere I go. If the story is straight all the time, if I'm always just being honest and real and truthful and transparent, then I can save that energy I would have to have had to spend keeping up with my lies, my white lies, my manipulations, my half-truths, and everything else, and I can just be real. It is such a freeing way to live, to be able to live with purity of heart. Even more importantly than that, we want to be pure in heart with God. We want to be pure before God. You know, David had some, uh, some prayers in the Psalms where he was very... Uh, self-condemning, self-acknowledging his failures, his deficiencies, his great needs. But there were also times that David went before God, sometimes in those very same Psalms, and said, Lord, you know my heart. Lord, you know this is me. This is, this is just me. And, and I'm trying to follow you. And I'm, I'm, this is, my, this is my, my true heart's desire. You wouldn't invite some notable guest into your home and spend, you know, hours, maybe days preparing the home to show good hospitality, getting the bed made just right, putting a chocolate mint on the pillow, making sure all the dog hair was out, out of the carpet, you know, putting some fresh smells in different parts of the house and preparing the most wonderful menu 
and, and then your guest, your honored guest, comes to sit at your table, and you reach in the dishwasher and pull out a dirty dish and put that delicious meal on it and set that crusty, dirty, nasty dish in front of your honored guest. But you come to church and ask the Lord to eat off the dirty plate of your impure heart on a regular basis. Don't. Don't. Give the Lord a pure heart when you come before Him. Even if your thoughts have been impure, even if you are, you are acknowledging sin in your life, put it back in the dishwasher and run the cycle. You know, go before the Lord and say, Lord, this is me. This is who I am. Wash me, Lord. Cleanse me. Make me fresh. I want to bring you a clean plate to serve you this sacrifice of worship. Blessed are the pure in heart because you're going to sit down across the table from Jesus. You're going to see God and he's going to smile. Blessed are the peacemakers. Here's another gift you can give. Mercy is between you and one other person. Peacemaking can be bilateral, but often it's trilateral. Often the peacemaker is the third party coming into a dispute, a conflict, a confusion, a misunderstanding, a hurt that already exists. And Proverbs warns us that not to meddle with something that's not our concern. It says it's like grabbing a dog by the ears, which is not a good idea. Uh, you know, they say that uh, police officers who are responding to a call of a domestic dispute, that's one of the times they're the most scared. Because the husband and wife could be screaming at each other, throwing curling irons and baseball bats and pairs of scissors across the room at each other, cussing each other out. The police officer rings the doorbell and they both go to the door and start cussing the police officer out. Uh, you, you don't want to get tangled up in something that is uh, somebody else's problem that you don't, you know, how, what, what am I going to bring to the situation? And yet God does call us at times and opens doors of opportunities for us to intervene in a way that we can actually, in a very minor way, we can actually step into the shoes of Jesus. We heard wonderful messages from Brother Thomas Mann at the Grace Chapel July meeting about Christ as our advocate. Christ is our intercessor. Christ is our propitiation. Christ is a mediator. Comes between two aggrieved parties. Now let's not paint God as being somehow unreasonable or unjust. God is perfectly just and righteous in His grievance against the human race. We're rebels against a just and holy God with no one to blame but ourselves. Yet Jesus, the God-man, the one perfectly qualified mediator, steps in to resolve this breach. And being 100% God, he can perfectly represent the interests of God. And being fully man, yet without sin, tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, understanding, being touched with the feelings of our infirmities, he can perfectly relate to our circumstance, to our failures, to our weakness, not because he has any failures of his own, but because he is a man and he lived among men, walked among men. And so he perfectly represents the, the needs of mankind as the God-man, and he perfectly represents the character of God as the God-man. And this mediator brings about perfect, lasting harmony and reconciliation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You can live with children of God becomes a technical term to us. It means I've been elected and and atoned, my sins atoned at the cross, and I've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, and I'm being sanctified by His power right now. Those are all true statements. But one way that, the, that, the, that Jesus often uses the expression 
to be someone's child means to act like them. He told some of the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. He's the father of lies. You're going around telling lies. You're acting just like old dad. Well, it'd be good for us to act like our dad, our heavenly father. It'd be good for us to act like our elder brother, Jesus Christ, and be able to be called the children of God because we are pursuing not just an effective, efficient compromise, not just a you know, papered over uh, you know, Band-Aid solution to a, to a deep-seated problem, but we are willing to dig in there like a surgeon using the Word of God as our resource, the wisdom of God to guide us and really help people grapple with the difficult issues that can bring about reconciliation, unity in the family of God. All right, so there's four things you didn't have. There were three things you can give, even though you don't have much. Now, finally, we get to the good part. Two things you get. So it's Christmas morning. What did I get? I'm, a, I'm living a blessed life. I'm having a rich and wonderful experience. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. I skipped to verse 11. Let me read to verse 10 too. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what do you get? You get some opposition. You get some resistance. You get some enemies. Jesus said, they hated me. They're going to hate you. If they hated me, they will hate you. If they hate you, you, it's okay because you remember they hated me. And Jesus leaves this a bit unspoken, but I think the implication is clear. If they don't hate you, it's probably because they don't recognize that you're with me. That You're not living in a way that makes it obvious that you are aligned with Christ. You're not going to be Christ. You're not going to walk in this life with your, you know, the, the vestiges of flesh and sin about you and, and have people mistake you for Christ and think that you are, you are flawless and perfect. But people took note of the disciples that they had been with Jesus. They were amazed that ignorant and unlearned men could be so wise and so powerful in their speech. Even though they couldn't preach quite like Jesus, they knew these men had been with Jesus. When you live in this way, when you exhibit these beatitudes, these qualities in your life, people are going to notice and you would think the tendency would be, even among the haughty and high-minded, the tendency would be, well, you know, at least she's nice to have around because she, makes, she helps resolve conflicts and make things go more smoothly. But the sad reality is that many times for doing the right thing, you will be called into question. You'll be challenged. Your motives are not real. You're such a goody two-shoes. You're just trying to pretend like you're righteous. You're trying to make the rest of us feel badder, bad. bad, bad. Um, somebody, somebody said this meeting, uh, at this meeting at Grace Chapel that, uh, you know, that there's this, um, you know, this, 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 uh, I'm sorry, I lost my thought there. I, I stumbled a word and it threw me, I got my tongue tangled around my eye teeth and I couldn't see what I was saying, so... <laughs> All right, I'm going to move on from that uh, half thought. So, <laughs> blessed are you when you're persecuted. And this is a hard one to swallow, but it is an important reality to recognize you're not just blessed because there's a promise of glory after the persecution. You're blessed, like the disciples said. They, re- they left rejoicing, left the hall of judgment rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. You're blessed in the very moment of persecution. That's how Paul and Silas could be in chains, beaten on their hands and knees, singing praises to God at midnight. Rejoicing 
Lord, you're so good. I've been beaten so badly. I've been, I've been uh, mistreated. My rights have been taken from me. I, 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 this is a terrible injustice. Just like you did for me, Jesus. Thank you that I can do this for your cause. And it's not just the overt persecution of verse 10. It's the sometimes more uh, corrosive and erosive uh, drip, drip, drip of, of microaggressions, they call them, you know, these days. Uh, but, but, but of, of, you know, it's not that you were necessarily had your, you lost your job, lost your house, they took your kids away from you, and they locked you up in prison and scheduled your execution date. That would be honest-to-goodness persecution, and it may come to that. And we should be prepared and conscious of that. But it can also be that they revile you. They just make fun of you. They persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, Jesus said. It's not just that you've got difficult relationships because you're an obnoxious person and so people are mean to you and you're mean to them. No, he said, and again, you're doing the right thing. You're striving to do the right thing. You're striving to honor the Lord and people are accusing you, gossiping about you, mocking you, uh, misjudging your motives, uh, slandering you, whispering about you, or just won't sit at the lunch table with you. But even there, he says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Have you ever been driving? It's maybe a hard illustration to use these days with GPS as ubiquitous as it is now. But if you've ever used a paper map or tried to follow somebody's jotted down directions on an index card, and you have some vague familiarity. I, went, I was there at this place 10 or 15 years ago. I think I'm going to recognize it when I get there. And you get into the general vicinity and you just find yourself perplexed. You're not sure you're on the right path. You, you, you're trying to look at the card. You're trying to watch the road signs. Some things have changed. There's a new shopping center you don't recognize. A new neighborhood that wasn't there last time you were there. And you're so confused until finally you see a landmark that says, Oh, oh wait, I know exactly where I am. Jesus says... When this kind of opposition comes on you for following Christ, you can look up and you can say, wow, that's the landmark of the prophets before me, of the apostles, of Jesus, my Savior. They've been here. They left this landmark to remind me that I'm on the right path. I'm almost there. And so we've got this pyramid now. Four things you don't have. Three things you give, even when you can't. Two things that you get. Sorry, I played a mean trick on you there. You get persecution, you get reviling. But all of this, this pyramid, points to the glory of God. Verse 16, let your light, Brother Mike talked about the salt of the earth and the light of the world, a city set on an hill. People like this, a, a kingdom, a heavenly, supernatural kingdom made up of people like this makes a difference in the world. It adds flavor to the world variety. You're sure not going to see people like that on every street corner. But it also, salt has the influence of being a preservative, cleansing, healing influence. In moderation and proper proportions, salt is actually a very beneficial and necessary nutritional element. It preserves meat from rotting. It does good for your body. You're the salt of the earth. The world is a better place because God has put people like his servants in it. And you're the light of the world. You're not someone who just retreats into a, into a corner and says, we'll follow God down here and somehow the world will be blessed out there. No, you are going to go up and shine that light. Let your light so shine before men. I made the mistake many years ago, early in my ministry, um, there was a, a, a fine young gentleman whose uh, mother had passed away. 
But this fine young gentleman had spent so much of his life pursuing his own ambitions, dreams, and objectives that he hit the big time. He had a special niche of legal practice in Washington, D.C. People would call him from all over the country to get his expertise on this stuff. He was living the life he always wanted to live, and then his mom died, and then he suddenly felt incredibly guilty. He realized he had spent his whole life pursuing his own plan, his own agenda, and he realized he had neglected uh, those who had loved him and, and taken care of him. And so I met this man for the first time the day before the funeral to go through. I'm sure you preachers are you know, familiar with this uh, routine. You take a sheet of paper and uh, so tell me about your mother, okay? I, don't, I didn't know her and I don't know you. The preacher is supposed to do the funeral is out of town. Thank you, Brother Bloyd. But uh, he, he gave them my name. So, uh, so I, yes, I'll do my duty and stand in here. Let me jot down all that. So I wrote down all these wonderful things about the character of his mother, her generosity, her, uh, you know, her, her, her views for supporting the work of the kingdom of God. Just, you know, just, a, just a, a very fine, dignified, generous lady. And so at the funeral the next day, I'm up there talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, reading some stuff from this passage, relating some of these attributes to some of the examples from her life that, that he had shared with me. And it was a pretty packed house, and he was sitting right up here on the front row. And I was thundering away from the pulpit, and I said, and Jesus says that we let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our name. I said it to be facetious. I said it because I thought surely everyone would recognize that wasn't what it said. And I got the loudest amen from the front pew of that church building. He's like, let's toot mom's horn. I felt bad because I kind of accidentally lured him into that trap. So I try to be more careful about that ever since. So let's be clear up front. That's not what the verse says. This verse does not say you're doing all this so that men will pat you on the back. Even other humble, meek Poor in spirit, church members will come up and say, you're doing such a good job, brother. You're doing such a good job, sister. Keep it up. A word of encouragement every now and then is nice, but that's not why you're doing this. You're not doing this so that people will see you. You're doing this so that people will look right past you and you won't feel the slightest bit disrespected by it because you're not here about you. You're here about him. They've said a beautiful expression is that the job of the preacher of the gospel is to hold up a painting of Christ and try very, very hard not to let your fingers show around the edges. Our job is to point others to Christ by the way we live, by the way we talk, by the way we interact with them, by our character and demeanor, by these beatitudes, so that they see our good works and their attention is diverted away from us altogether. And instead, they glorify your Father, which is in heaven. See Christ in these attributes. Take on these attributes. Cultivate, nurture these attributes. Realize, dear brothers and sisters, this is what the blessed life really looks like. God bless you.